We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're kind of starting this new sermon series where we're, we're going to talk about um, what does life look like in between our birth, or Christ's resurrection, and Christ's coming again. Um, and so today, you know, kind of how we started out is, um, in a sense, we're going we're gonna to forecast ahead. We're going to look to the end a little bit. Um, you know the phrase, to broaden your horizons, right? Okay. Um, um, I think it's a pretty common phrase for us to use. Um, and usually it, it, it involves just us experiencing new things, right? Um, maybe taking in new knowledge, maybe um, expanding our, our understanding of the world around us, the things around us. So when we use that phrase, to broaden your horizons, right? It means you're, you're, you're opening yourself up and you're kind of broadening yourself. Okay. But I would guess more often than not, when we use that phrase, we're probably thinking in terms of like, almost like an intellectual um, um, arena, right? We think about what, what are we taking in, right? That's going to allow us to understand things more clearly. There's a real fascinating study. A man named Andrew Huberman, he is a professor at Stanford. Um, he, had, he has done a study over the last 20 years specifically looking at that concept of broadening your horizons. But here's the really fascinating thing about Andrew, um, is that what he has found, um, it, it was, it's not merely an intellectual intake of information, right? Um, what he has found is that um, when we talk about broadening our horizons, that there are physiological things that happen when we actually look at the horizon. Okay? So, um, and I think, at least in our minds, we think this is only an intellectual pursuit. But what, uh, what Andrew Huberman found out was that actually there is a physiological response in you, in me, in us, um, when we stare at the horizon. Okay? Now, conversely, what he's also found is there are physiological responses in our lives that close in our horizons or our view. And some of you kind of know that, right? Uh, you think about um, when you are in a kind of a fight or flight situation, right? Um, or maybe you're under extreme amounts of stress. Maybe um, your, your life is, just feels completely out of control or you're confronted with something what almost immediately happens to you physiologically? Yeah, things actually come in tight, don't they? So uh, um, cortisol levels go up due to stress. Adrenaline gets shot throughout your bodies. And, uh, um, and actually physically, even our eyesight and our view of the things around us come in tighter. Sometimes we use the term tunnel vision. Uh, I heard a good illustration of it. It's um, if you've got a, 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 an iPhone, if you put it on portrait mode, what does it do? It'll focus just on the face and what does everything else look like? Yeah, blurry around it, right? So in a sense, when we, when we are under stress, when we are panicked, when we are scared, when we run into fear, um, our lives and even physiologically kind of go into this portrait mode where we come in tight. Now, um, um, Andrew did the study of that and he said that you can actually um, physiologically reverse some of those effects by doing what? Guess what? Looking at the horizon. Yeah. 
So uh, um, when, when the fight or flight mode or, or kicks in, right, so that he could actually measure and measured over the last 20 years that our, our, um, the tilt of our eyeballs actually physically come in just a little bit and our vision gets less and less. But what he's found was what's amazing is that when we stare at a horizon, that it actually physically changes the, the positioning of our eyeballs and has a physiological response. So, you're thinking, okay, I'm not sure if I believe him or not, right? But the truth is, I think you do. If a view like that sets your heart at ease a little bit, and you feel uh, maybe the cortisol levels come down just a little bit, or you this morning are dreaming of maybe being able to be on the ocean or on a sailboat or just looking off into the distance, you've felt it a little bit, haven't you? Right? Now, uh, if you're anything like me, when you see a picture like this, I just think of nausea because I have motion sickness. So, um, so it does not give me that same physiological reaction, uh, but this one does. Right? This one does. When I go up into the mountains, when we look at Long's Peak, that 14,000 foot peak to our west, you feel something, don't you? I think we do. I think, I think even, even uh, um, maybe intuitively, we understand that when, when, we, when we look into the distance, when we look at the horizon, when we see the vastness of the world around us, and when we force our eyesight um, as far as it can see, it humbles us and in some sense even releases some of those things. Now, um, um, Andrew Huberman found that to be exactly the case. That if you take time to look into the distance at the horizon, if you force your eyes to just gaze at that, if you go for a hike, if you go for a sail on a sailboat and you just look into the vast distance, cortisol levels will drop Adrenaline levels will come back down to normal, right? And in truth, you'll find some relief. Now, he's found that to be true uh, physiologically of us. But brothers and sisters, I think that's true for us spiritually as well. And the truth is, that's what our text does for us today. When we look into Revelation chapter 7, this is what God is doing for your heart, for us spiritually. He is saying, for a moment, for an hour on a Sunday morning, I want you to just look at the distance. I want you to look at the horizon. I want you to see where you are headed, where you are going, and the assurance of your destination there. So today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to open up pages of Revelation chapter 7, but specifically, we're looking at eternity, and we're looking at heaven, and we're looking at the, the, the end of pain, suffering, brokenness, and ultimately being with our God above. So I pray that that is what we are able to do today. As we, as we gaze into um, the, the vastness of who our God is, the beauty that we find on the pages of Scripture, that it also gives our hearts a little bit of rest. And no matter how hard things get, our destination and the victory is already assured and won. So let's take a look at it. Uh, this morning, 
I've got fill in the blank if you want to do that. Uh, so we've got kind of three points. We're going to fill these in as we go along. Um, you're welcome to use your bulletin to kind of make notes if you like to do so. Um, but these are kind of the three areas that we're going to go through as we walk through uh, Revelation chapter 7. Okay? Um, but before we, we kind of start answering some of those or jump into our text, um, we've got to set the context for the book of Revelation just a little bit. Uh, so uh, this is the very last book in the Bible. Right? This is the last book that was written in the Bible, uh, and it was written by the disciple John. Now, um, he wrote Revelation while he was on the island of Patmos, where he had been exiled to. Uh, we know this from Scripture that uh, he, had been, he had been exiled to Patmos because of sharing the gospel, because he would not stop telling people about who Jesus was, his death, and his resurrection and sins forgiven in him. So the Roman Empire has said, you can go live on the island of Patmos. Um, today, I think the island of Patmos is kind of like a resort area. Like you might want to like buy a ticket to go to Patmos. Um, at John's time, not so much, right? Not so much. Uh, but the Romans would often do this, that they would exile people to kind of isolated islands and, and locations in, in hopes that they would they would kind of stop sharing the message that they had done. Now, the Roman Empire did that with John, and that was where he finished the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Now, understand what John had gone through up to this point. Um, John was the last living disciple. So he had seen um, all of his best friends, men and women, believers, killed, right? Um, he had seen the persecution that had come from the Roman Empire. Uh, the book of Revelation, we estimate, was written after 90 AD. So he had seen multiple waves of persecution already by that point, And he had lost loved ones. He had lost people that were near and dear to him. And I think maybe you can understand why God would have given him this vision in the book of Revelation. Those of you that are getting a little further up there in age. Maybe your hair is grayer and grayer, right? You thank God for your health and your life. But if you get old enough, what starts to happen? And you, you start to lose people you love, right? Classmates, gone. Neighbors, gone. Maybe a spouse, gone. Maybe children or even grandchildren that are gone, right? We get old enough and we start to see the people we love, the people that we grew with, the people that walked with us are no longer there anymore. And I think if you can think of that just a little bit, that's kind of where John was at. He had seen lots of people put to death. He had seen lots of pain and lots of persecution. And so in his twilight years, God comes to John and gives him this picture, this view of not just our lives now, but ultimately of eternity. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's a, it's a, it's a view of, of not only what's happening now, but also what is assured and what is to come. I heard someone uh, um, give the theme of Revelation uh, as simply as this, Jesus wins, right? So there is incredible visions, there's incredible pictures, there's illustrations all over the book of Revelation. But at the end of every single line and every single chapter within that book, 
the theme remains the same, Jesus wins. And I think that would have been important for John to hear. And to be honest, I think it's important for us to hear and be reminded of as well. In the end, Jesus wins, right? So John wrote and, and uh, um, the book of Revelation was given to him, this vision of what is not only happening now, but what is to come. Now, Book of Revelation, uh, sometimes people have said it's a little bit harder to understand all the pictures and the imagery that is in there. So this is a vision of things, right? So God will, will take um, earthly illustrations and try to use those as a way to paint a picture of what is in eternity and what is to come. So he is using earthly illustrations to give us a, a heavenly view of things, right? Book of Revelation does that. Uh, I don't know if any of you are, um, are um, in, like paintings and art. This um, particular piece of art, I'm not saying necessarily whether you love it or you don't, um, but it takes a little bit of interpretation, doesn't it? So if you're looking at this, um, this particular piece of abstract art, uh, it, was, it was created in the 1940s by a Dutch uh, Arthur, or uh, Dutch artist named Piet Mondrian. Um, so he created this, and, uh, and it's been hanging in a museum, had been hanging in a museum all that time from the 1940s until today, right? Now, what was interesting about this piece of art from Piet Mondrian, um, it took about 50 years for someone to realize um, that the painting was hanging upside down in the museum. Yeah, you ever heard this story? So, um, so if you're taking a look at it, um, the one on the left is incorrect. That's how it had hung in the museum for a long, long time. And then someone came along and said, and they kind of had some archival photos of Piet in his studio. And on the back wall happened to be that painting. And it was actually hanging the other way. Right? Okay. Now... It hung upside down incorrectly for 50 years. Um, how could that mistake have been corrected? They eventually had a photo that helped them. But you want to know what would have been even better? If Piet had come into the museum and said, uh, you got that thing hanging the wrong way, right? I think that becomes a pretty good illustration for when we look through the book of the Bible um, and when we look through the book of Revelation. So this is a picture that God is painting to John and to us, right? And so we try to look at it, we try to interpret it, we try to see all the images that is coming from it, right? And some maybe are more obvious than others, but you want to know the best way to understand the book of Revelation? It's to have the artist standing next to you. Now here's the amazing thing, you're in luck, right? You're in luck because... Book of Revelation, say almost 70% of the images and the references in the book of Revelation refer back to other books in the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, right? So here's the beautiful thing. You get to, we get to open the pages and, and, and read the words from Revelation, but then we can ask of ourselves, what does this mean? Well, the artist can tell us. We can actually go to the Old Testament. We can listen to the artist's own word, our God above, and what is written in the, in the entire book of the Bible in order to help us understand these images of what is to come and what will be. 
And so almost 70% of Revelation is actually referencing Old Testament texts. So um, sometimes I think maybe we write off Revelation as a book that's difficult to understand. Um, And I would say yes and no. It is hard if we try to go it alone and try to interpret what we're looking at. But things become remarkably clear when the artist stands by our side and we're able to look into the other pages and the other book, books of the Bible in order to understand what God is, is speaking to us. Okay? So um, that's what we're going to do. That's my encouragement. I had a professor once say um, that you, you ought not study the book of Revelation until you've read the entire Bible all the way through twice. It makes some sense, doesn't it? Right? Um, with, with all the references back to the Old Testament, other books of the Bible, it'll help us understand the images that God is giving us, right? And specifically today, we're looking at that picture of eternity and of heaven. So uh, here's where we're headed. We got those three points um, and what we're going to fill in. So let's start with just verse 9. It says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Okay, so who are we talking about here? When we are looking ahead, when we're looking at the horizon of what is to come and of eternity, who are we talking about here? Nation, tribe, people, and language, right? It's a beautiful phrase, and it's actually one that's repeated five times in the book of Revelation. So God uses it multiple times, right? Um, The other two places that he uses it, Revelation 5 and Revelation 14, he specifically says this, uh, because you were slain with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, okay? Revelation 14, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, put those two references together with the one we read today, and you get a pretty beautiful, clear picture of who we're talking about here, and actually a pretty beautiful um, picture of what God asks and expects of us as we live our lives. The first is that we were purchased from every tribe, language, nation, and people. How were we purchased from the, the vastness of our world? By the blood of Christ, right? Through faith in Christ, that, that Jesus' death and resurrection have pulled us from darkness and placed us in light, have um, um, taken that sin and washed it clean through his sacrifice for us. So um, we, those who have faith in Christ, have been pulled from every tribe, language, nation, and people, not on our own account, but because of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, Okay? Secondly, God gives us purpose, doesn't he? Because the second one says, now what are we to do? Or to take that gospel, blood of Christ, forgiveness we have in him, and take it to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And then the point of our text here today, there will be a day when every nation, tribe, language, and people gather around our Lord and Savior in eternity and in heaven. So it's really beautiful in this book of Revelation is that God uses that phrase in three different ways and he addresses um, not only where we are now, but where we came from and where we are headed 
and your horizon and where we are looking at, right? And that's where he takes us, right? So let's go on with our next verse here, verse 10. It says this, <clears throat> And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, so we have those who, who were called out, right, through the blood of Christ. And what are we doing? Crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, salvation belongs to who? To our God and to the Lamb. You want to know who it does not belong to? Us and our own works, right? So it's fascinating when we see um, this song of eternity in heaven, what are we doing? We are, we are praising our God above for the salvation that he has worked, not because we are such great people, because we were so worthy of it, but solely because of his undeserved love on our behalf, that God worked salvation for us. And so you see that song that is played out, right? That salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And I think that's where sometimes maybe we set our sights a little short or at times I think we kind of get mixed up who's actually in charge of salvation. See, I think more often than not, we would much rather be the ones that are being sung to than singing to our God above. And I think that's easy to fall into, especially when we think about our lives here before we get to heaven because they're not easy. I don't think I would have to ask too many questions to know that each and every one of you have different things that are remarkably heavy upon your shoulders. Maybe it is loss of a job, pain of disease, struggles, maybe relationships that are tearing at the seams. Uh, maybe it's loss of a loved one, a father, right? Um, these are the things that are a part of our human living, right? Suffering, pain, and sorrow. I think the second part, too, is just our own desire to maybe um, grab the reins of salvation away from our God above and take it upon ourselves. Right? Um, that, that, that maybe we, that I, have a far better idea uh, of the plan that my life should lay out with. Right? That I want to be the master of my soul rather than our God above. And I think we do that in a myriad of ways. Right? Uh, um, um, at times we try to just take control, right? At times I think we even try to ignore, right? C.S. Lewis once said it this way, when we're talking about viewing eternity and heaven from our lives here on earth, he says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think there's some truth in that, isn't there? We busy our lives, uh, maybe overwhelmed with the pain and suffering or engaged in the uh, um, um, pursuit of passions and the things that are going to help us get through this day or the next. All the while, God says, guess what? You're children of the king, right? We go about making uh, mud castles when in reality, you are sons and daughters 
of the king and have a place in his throne. I think at times our sights are set far too low rather than on the horizon and the beauty and the glory that we have in our Lord and Savior. Which kind of leads to our first fill-in-the-blank here. So our vision, at times, I think is far too narrow. Okay? All right, next couple of verses. Verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders asked me, These in the white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Right? Two things we want to look at here. They have come out of the great tribulation and they have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, the first one here, I actually don't like that translation quite uh, as much as it could be. That's actually a present tense. So maybe a better translation would be, um, these are they who are coming out of the great tribulation. That this is not something that just happened and then we all exited, but this is something that is happening over and over and over again. And what are we talking about when we talk about the great tribulation? Well, guess what? It's us. It's here. It's now. We are in the end times from Christ's death and resurrection till now. The 2,000 years, we have seen all the things that Jesus talked about and the Bible puts in front of us. Wars and rumors of war, pain and suffering, famine, hardship, all of those things. We can feel the struggle and the, the, the grinding of the gears of our world around us and even within us. Tribulation is probably a good term for it, isn't it? But here's the real beautiful thing, right? We, there are those that have been called from that tribulation and are continuing to do so. And how are we pulled from that? Ultimately through the blood of the Lamb. Through Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. But His death and His resurrection pull us from this body of death. The Apostle Paul talks about, he says, who, who is going to save me from this body of death? Nothing short of Jesus Christ as our Lord. That's the same reality we have as well. So when we look to eternity, when we look to heaven, that destination is secure. When you lie on your deathbed, and Satan throws all the things in your face of the things you did or did not do, the only thing that matters is what Christ has done on your behalf. And what that means is you are assured of eternity. Your entrance into heaven is based on Christ and his blood shed for you. Your sins are forgiven. You are washed clean and there will come a day when we are pulled from that tribulation and we enter into eternity with our God above. That's the beauty of the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. He still wins. And because Jesus won, guess what? So do you. Eternity is secure. Not because of who we are or what we have done, but because we have been washed clean through the blood of the Lamb, through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. C.S. Lewis, once again, kind of puts it this way. He says, To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts 
can hardly sustain, but so it is. Jesus' death and resurrection means you are forgiven, you are loved, and eternity is your goal and your home. That's what the book of Revelation shows us. The beauty of being in our God's presence. And what will that look like? Our next verses tell us. So our second point here, Christ's sacrifice assures our hearts, your hearts, of forgiveness. Last couple verses, 15 and 17. It says, He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That picture of eternity, it's not an if, but just when we enter it. And the picture that is painted is incredible. God himself is our shelter, our protector, right? That, that he envelops and surrounds us. And in heaven, in eternity, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I think on some level, maybe that's even hard for us to imagine. What will it look like? Right? Especially sitting here at this time in the pain and suffering often that we do. There will come a time when all things are made perfect, right? With our God above. No more fracturing, brokenness, pain, or sin. But perfection with our God above. This selection... Uh, from Revelation chapter 7. Uh, it's kind of an interesting one. Um, I haven't preached on it all that many times um, within a, a worship setting, uh, but I kind of went back through my sermons and I realized I, I had preached on it and I had used it, but do you want to know more often than not where Revelation chapter 7 is used within a Christian context? Funerals. Yeah. It's used at funerals, Right? After the loss of a loved one, after the pain that we feel, what beautiful picture are we able to give those that are mourning and you here today as well than this? There will come a time where there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more weeping. There will come a time when you will see your loved one again. Tomorrow, uh, I'm going to do a Christian funeral for Thomas Kephart Sr., uh, one of the texts that was chosen for that is from John chapter 11. It simply says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. This is the comfort, this is the beauty, and this is the picture that our God above paints for us in the book of Revelation. And it's not some wishful thinking, it is a certain reality through Jesus' death and resurrection. Heaven absolutely was Tom Kephart Sr.'s home and he's there now. And heaven absolutely is your home as well. Not because of who we are, what we've done, or what is draped over our shoulders at the end of our life, but solely because of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, the blood of the Lamb that has washed you clean. No more tribulation, pain, sorrow, brokenness, only joy, eternity, no more tears with our Lord and Savior in heaven. So Revelation 7 oftentimes used funerals. I think we maybe ought to use it more often. 
I pray that we are able, that your hearts are able to, to look at the horizon and know this without a shadow of a doubt. Your destination is secure because of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen.